we go. Back again with another episode of the Around the Show Sports Podcast. As always, this is your host, Kyle Showalter. And folks, it has been a minute. Uh, I've been I've been a busy man these last couple of months, finishing up my first year of grad school. I started a new job a couple of months ago. But I have been tweeting away about all things sports over at Kyle Showalter and at Around the Show SP. So make sure that if you want to keep up with everything that we got going on, that you follow those accounts. And really... There's been an insane amount of sports happening these last couple of months. Obviously, it's a very busy time of year. The NFL offseason is in full swing. Uh, We had the NFL draft. We'll talk about that a little bit today. Uh, The NBA playoffs are starting up. The MLB season is now in full swing. So this is one of the best times of the year. We got everything really going on. And I just want to jump right into it with the NBA playoffs, specifically these play-in games. I want to ask, you know, how do we all feel about this? You know, these teams play all season just for it to kind of come down to this two-game playoff max, possibly just play, win one game, and you're in. It feels kind of wonky to me in a sport that's so, it's so similar to baseball in that, you know, the best team doesn't tend to win every night, but they do tend to win every series. You know, you might fluke out a win or two, but the best team is going to win a a best-of-seven series. And... You know, it feels a lot like the wild card games in baseball where you play the whole 162 and then you have a one game playoff, but the stakes are a little bit lower because you have that second game to fall back on. Specifically, I want to talk about this Lakers Warriors game and folks, that game was a nightmare. I watched it with one of my one of my good buddies and we were laughing the entire game. It was just a complete slop fest. I've seen a lot of people talk about how it was one of the best games of the year and I Couldn't disagree more. It's one of the worst games I think I've ever watched. And yeah, it was exciting, of course. I mean, LeBron got fouled, poked in the eye. Uh, There was the the big drama with that. Was it a flagrant? Was it just a common foul? They ended up ruling it a common foul. Probably the correct call. Uh, LeBron came and then hit a huge 37-foot three-pointer, then pointed at Steph Curry and said, I can't even see, said that he just aimed for the middle rim of the three he was seeing. Of course, I mean, exciting moments in the game. The Warriors had the chance to tie it at the end, but that doesn't necessarily make it a good game. We got to call it for what it is. It was a slop-dominated, ugly game that the Lakers ended up coming out on top of. I mean, there was 31 turnovers in the game. The team shot a combined 43% from the floor. There were tons of offensive fouls that made up those turnovers. And really, the Warriors just kind of gave the they gave the game away. The Lakers were dead to rights. They were down 13 at halftime. Uh, LeBron and AD were miserable. They shot 3 of 19 from the floor in the first half, and then they just let him back in the game. So really, my main takeaway from the game is it is what it is. It was two teams, one that isn't necessarily very talented in the Warriors, even though they have Steph Curry, and we'll talk about him a little bit later, and the Lakers, who are just kind of out of whack. You know, AD has been sort of off these last couple of games. He's only been averaging 22 in the last 10 before the play-in game. And of course, you know, you hear 22 points per game. That's no slouch, but it's Anthony Davis. You're expecting a little bit more than that, especially when you hear it's on 43% shooting. And LeBron obviously working his way back from that ankle injury. You know, how is he going to be in rhythm with the rest of this team when he really hasn't played many minutes these last couple of months? And they're going into a series against a Suns team that is very, very solid. You know, they're the, two seed, they're the two seed of the season for a reason, folks. They were very good to start last season before kind of slowing down. But then they showed up to the bubble and showed out. They were 8-0. They dominated the games. There was a really awesome emotional uh, team meeting after their final game where the coach told him how proud he was of them. 
It was pretty incredible. And this year, they were just absolutely dominant on both sides of the ball the entire season. And now I want to try to quantify for you that dominance that the Suns have had on both sides of the ball all year. They were 7th in offensive rating, 6th in defensive rating, 7th in points per game, 7th in 3-point percentage, and 2nd in field goal percentage, while also being tops in assist-to-turnover ratio with 2.15. Now, the point of this is, essentially, the Suns are a top-10 scoring team, a top-10 team in stopping you from scoring. They shoot with incredible efficiency from inside and outside of the 3-point line and end a possession with an assist twice as often as they end it with a turnover. Quite simply, that is a team that is going to play clean ball and try to capitalize on your mistakes. And if the Lakers show up and play against the Suns in a series the way that they did against the Warriors on Wednesday night, they have no chance. And that's that's talking about a team with arguably the greatest player of all time and Anthony Davis, who's one of the best big men we've seen in the last decade or two, possibly ever. I mean, it, it's a, such a special group, but they can't afford to make the mistakes they made against the Warriors, where it was Steph Curry and Andrew Wiggins against the world. I mean, no one showed. Draymond Green had a good game, though it didn't really look like it if you just look at the scoring. And again, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the Lakers absolutely cannot afford to play the way they did against the Warriors. They're a top-heavy team, and if their guys shoot 3 of 19 from the floor in the first half, meaning LeBron and AD, they're going to get ran out of the building. Both these guys found their footing in the second half, but that's just not going to be good enough against Phoenix. And now I really do want to pivot over to what I've mentioned a couple times, and that's Steph Curry, man. I purposefully tried not to talk about him in that first part because his performance on Wednesday deserves its own conversation. And man, what he did on Wednesday night was special. An absolute vintage Steph Curry performance. He had 37 on 12 of 23 shooting, 6 of 9 from 3. And yeah, the stats are great, but if you watch that game, you know it was more than just the scoring. The Warriors were awful on Wednesday night. Outside of Curry and Wiggins, no one showed up offensively. It was absolute slop. There were turnovers, there were offensive fouls, guys were missing wide open shots. Warriors not named Steph Curry shot 41% of the floor and had 14 turnovers. Draymond Green played 41 minutes and didn't make a single shot from the floor. He scored his only two points on free throws. And yeah, Draymond had a great game in every other regard. He had nine rebounds and eight assists, three blocks and three steals. And if you just watch the game, Draymond's fingerprints were all over it. But if it wasn't Curry taking the shots, the Warriors had no chance of scoring. And I really think that this is analogous for the Warriors' entire season. Steph took this team that was quite literally the worst team in the NBA last season and led them to a 39-33 record in the West. Not in the East, where a lot of teams have been weakened by players moving West, in the stacked Western Conference, where they have to play the Lakers, the Clippers, the Nuggets, the Blazers, the Jazz, amongst others. I mean, very, very, very good basketball out in the West this year. And he averaged a casual 32, 5.5, and 5.8 on 48% shooting and 42 from beyond the three-point line. Just an unbelievable season, but it's just par for the course for this guy. He was the hero for the Warriors night in and night out. And as a guy who spent a great deal of Curry's career admittedly rooting against him, I'm finally going to own up to this publicly. Steph is an absolute blast. And of course, I didn't hate the guy I didn't necessarily want him to fail, but I rooted against his teams for so long when I was rooting for LeBron and the Cavaliers. 
you know, there, there was always the respect there, but there wasn't necessarily the admiration and the desire for him to put his team over the top like I felt last night rooting for him. And for the first time this season, I got to really watch Steph for beyond what I knew. You know, I knew he was a fun player. I knew that he was the greatest shooter to ever live. I know he had this incredible handle and he was a blast to watch. But I got to really sit down and really feel the Steph Curry effect for the first time. And I think that's something I was really missing out on as a sports fan. And I think that a lot of people who have over the last decade been really viscerally rooting against the Warriors have missed out on that. And I hope that they got the opportunity last night to kind of experience that for the first time. Because I now fully understand how special Steph Curry is. And I've known this entire time. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. He has all this talent. He's a fun guy. But... I really got to see the full picture last night. You know, the shooting, the handles, the vision, the absolute experience it is to watch Steph Curry. It's incredible. And in a league that's very narrative-driven like the NBA is, in a season where we saw Steph take the Warriors from the absolute literal worst record, worst team in the NBA, 15 wins all of last season, and in a shortened season to turn around and win 39 and to secure the eight seed and a bid in the playoff uh, play-in tournament, it's special. And like I said, in the narrative-driven league that the NBA is, where these things are what dominate award cycles, you know, you talk about the triple-double for Russell Westbrook, you talk about when Giannis Antetokounmpo emerged, even though maybe another player had a better season than him, it was his turn. The torch was being passed to Giannis. He got the MVP. I think that narrative is being spun in the direction to where Steph Curry is the MVP of the league this season. Point, point blank, period. He led one of the greatest year-to-year turnarounds we've seen in a long time. And what's key about that is there wasn't this huge roster turnover like we saw when LeBron went back to the Cavaliers the second time. And obviously, LeBron joins your team, you're going to get a lot better. But LeBron brought guys with him. We all know the Kevin Love trade for Andrew Wiggins, who is now Steph Curry's teammate, Small World. But let's look at Steph Curry's season and who he has out there. And let's go back to his last full season because last year he was hurt. His teammates were Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson. This year, KD is on the Nets, and Klay Thompson is rehabbing a torn Achilles fresh off his torn ACL. So Steph is out here with the same roster, essentially, that won 15 games last year and was able to turn them around into a, a playoff team. I mean, it, it's unbelievable to think about. If this happened in football, if a quarterback came onto a team and took a 3-13 and team, took him to 11-5 and record, made the playoffs, he'd be in the MVP conversation without a doubt. And I think in basketball, where the award cycle is so narrative-driven, it's almost impossible to not cast the vote. And I get it. I mean, Jokic had an incredible season. And I know what the analytics say about who should be MVP. But basketball is a game where feel is dominant. Narratives are more powerful in the NBA than in any other league. And, you know, I'm a huge analytics guy in baseball, and I'm starting to come around towards them on football as well. Basketball, I'm just not quite there yet. You know, I don't have the the tangible understanding of what these numbers represent. I haven't done enough looking into them to really get that full picture, but... For me, that for that reason, basketball is still so field driven, and it just feels like this is Steph Curry's year. And I think that is, uh, I think that's how voters make these decisions in the NBA. Honestly, you know, Steph went from the top dog to the underdog, and in it, I, along with I think a lot of people who have been, you know, looking at Steph through like this bad guy 
um, not necessarily bad guy, but the the villain because he's on the team, you know? We were looking at him through that perspective, and now I know and understand what I was missing about him, and I think that that feeling is shared by a lot of other fans and potentially a lot of voters out there. You know, on the court and off of it, I believe Steph Curry should be the NBA MVP this season, and I really don't think that there's a question about it. And now it's time to talk about something that I have been absolutely dying to dive into on here for the last month. And I'm going to take us back to the year 2005. We're going to get into the time machine and go back to the NFL draft, where a young man by the name of Aaron Rodgers has somehow fallen to the 24th overall pick. And this is where the Green Bay Packers are going to scoop him up, despite having Brett Favre in the building. And, you know, I'd say that that worked out pretty well. You know, they they won a Super Bowl. Rodgers has won multiple MVPs. He's arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Favre also went on and made a Pro Bowl after Rodgers was drafted, then went to another team, made another Pro Bowl. So very, very uh, interesting situation. And it's a sort of parallels what we're seeing now in the year 2020, where a young man by the name of Jordan Love has fallen to the 26th overall pick, where the Packers actually trade up to take him despite having Aaron Rodgers in the building. And folks, the results don't look quite as promising as what we see with the Aaron Rodgers selection. It's early. It's early. But when you piss off an NFL MVP, it usually isn't going to end well. And that's exactly uh, how this looks like it's going. Rodgers went on and won the NFL MVP in 2020 and is now allegedly, allegedly trying to force his way out of Green Bay. And you know, when you have one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time under center in your building, and you decide to trade up for his potential replacement when he's still playing at a high level, not necessarily as high as he was before the 2020 season, 2019 was a little rocky, but still no reason to panic about, you know, one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever live. They're saying that Rodgers is perceiving the move as a lack of respect, and it's really, really difficult to blame him for that. And, of course, Adam Schefter threw fuel on the fire on draft day in a move that did not go over well for him on Twitter. He got absolutely brutalized on Twitter when he came out on the Dan Patrick show and said essentially that he had no new information and he just decided to relay the information that he already had. Not necessarily the... uh, the, the most awesome move from a fan's perspective, and it's very understandable why Packers fans are so upset with Adam Schefter. But nevertheless, it really sparked this conversation about Aaron Rodgers. And now there's real questions. Are we going to see one of the top two, potentially top one quarterbacks of all time on the move this offseason? And truthfully, I don't think that that is the case. I don't think this is the year that we need to worry about Rodgers moving on from Green Bay. I think week one, Aaron is under center for the Packers. And I say that because of this. Where is Aaron Rodgers going to go that he will be in a better football situation than he is in Green Bay? Aaron Rodgers is a very intelligent human being. We've seen him on Celebrity Jeopardy, won that. He says he wants to compete against actual Jeopardy uh, contestants who are Martians. Rodgers is that level of intelligent. You know, he's, he's done some incredible things off the field. And because of this, there's no way that he could possibly believe that there's a better situation for him anywhere. You know, where where else is he going to go with a top five offensive line, a top three X wide receiver, a capable defense, and an offensive guru like LaFleur, who he seems to have a really good relationship with? 
And the answer is obviously nowhere. And I understand the frustration that Rodgers must be feeling. How, how else could you perceive an organization that seems to be looking into the future when there's a window right now? That has to be an incredibly frustrating thing. They haven't drafted a wide receiver in the first round in, I believe, 19 or 20 years. And they're out here drafting his potential successor when he's only 34 years old, now 35. I mean, it, it it's impossible to perceive that in any other way except disrespectful. You know, their window is open right now. Why aren't we going for it? And that is precisely the question that I have for Packers GM Brian Gutekunst, who decided to draft Aaron Rodgers' successor, and then followed that up by drafting a running back in the second round, despite having one of the few three-down backs in the league in Aaron Jones. It's all bad. And like I said, Rodgers is a smart guy. He knows he's not going to find a better situation than he has in Green Bay. He's just going to have to tolerate Gutekunst and the decisions the front office is going to make if he wants to continue to be in the hunt for Super Bowls, because truthfully, there's no other situation that's going to allow him to do that. And at this point in Rodgers' career, yeah, he could chase the money. Yeah, he could, you know, try to get traded to Miami and get out of Wisconsin where it's freezing and they play in negative weather, you know, four times a year. I mean, I assume that that isn't the the most enjoyable thing, but I don't think Rodgers cares. I think Rodgers wants to win Super Bowls at this point. He he has to be aware of the the conversations surrounding him and Tom Brady's legacies. And, you know, maybe if he wins a couple couple Super Bowls, he could turn a couple people into his corner for the greatest of all time conversation. That's a that's a talk for another day, but just some food for thought. So is is there any real news in this? Honestly, no. This is a very long-winded, I don't think Rodgers is going anywhere conversation, from me at least. But I do want to leave everyone with this information and you can come to the conclusion that you wish about the the Jordan Love selection if you haven't already. The Green Bay Packers went 13 and 3 and swept their division before losing in the NFC Championship game the year before they drafted Jordan Love. The year after they went 13 and 3 again, led the NFL in scoring and Rodgers won the NFL MVP. The year before the Packers drafted Aaron Rodgers with Brett Favre at the helm, they went 10 and 6 and scored only 7 points in their first round playoff loss. The next year, they went 4-12 and and Favre threw 29 interceptions to only 20 touchdowns. You can make the conclusion about where these guys were at, this, at the point in their careers where the successors were drafted. Despite what it seems like on the surface, these situations are not the same. And luckily for the Packers and the Packers fans everywhere, they didn't draft a quarterback in the first round of this year's NFL draft, but... A couple of other teams did, and it's been a while since the draft, so I don't want to really you know, circle that news cycle back and really pound it into the ground, but I do want to talk about it a little bit. So I decided that I'm going to talk about my NFL draft biggest winner and the biggest loser. And the biggest winner for me of the 2021 NFL draft, and this is going to shock a lot of people, but it's the Chicago freaking Bears, man. Justin Fields at pick 11, is the pick of the entire draft. He is going to be that guy. I think he is the second best quarterback in this class, obviously behind Trevor Lawrence, and these teams are insane for passing on him. If I was the Jets at number two, there wouldn't have been hesitation. As soon as I'm on the clock, I am walking the ticket in to draft Justin Fields with eight minutes left or however long they get between picks. Not even a question. This kid has the most arm talent in the draft, better than better than Wilson, better than Lawrence, better than Lance. 
I don't even need to mention Mac Jones, but I will. Better than Mac Jones. This kid likely saved Ryan Pace's job. This is A-plus favorite move of the entire draft. You know, yeah, you give up a first-round pick next year, but if you have the franchise quarterback, you have the key to a Super Bowl. You just have to start to build the roster around them. And Pace has shown the ability to build a solid roster. He's just missed on the quarterback with Trubisky. He missed really, really bad with Trubisky. But you go back and you think about the Bears quarterbacks the last 20 years. You had Rex Grossman, who was as inconsistent as could be. You know, he reminds me a lot of Ryan Fitzpatrick. He had great weeks and he had horrible weeks. Uh, Kyle Orton, Jay Cutler, who is for some reason pretty well disliked by uh, Bears Nation, despite him being the best quarterback that's ever suited up for them. Maybe that changes with Justin Fields, who knows, but that was a guy who the fan base had a lot of vitriol towards, and obviously the Trubisky experiment failed, and then Nick Foles came in there and played a good game or two, but the the fan base was uh, was over his uh, time on the team already. So I'm just really happy for not only the Bears organization, but Bears fans. You know, one of my best buddies is a Bears fan, and the excitement that he has for Justin Fields is palpable. You know, I get fired up talking to him about it. It's just, This is just an absolute home run pick for the Bears. Very, very excited for them. Now, unfortunately, when there's a winner of a draft, there has to be a loser of the draft. And, you know, when, when this guy was hired to be a head coach this offseason, I was shocked. You know, this was the team that I thought was the most attractive head coaching vacancy that was available this offseason. And instead of plucking, you know, one of these guys like Arthur Smith or Brian Dable, you know, these guys who we were talking about as like offensive gurus, these are going to be guys who can help shape a, a young quarterback. The Jacksonville Jaguars decided to hire Urban Meyer, who was the biggest loser of the 2021 NFL draft. And look, it was impossible to screw the first pick up, not even considering that it was the most black and white uh, pick, I think, of the last 15 years, probably, whenever since Andrew Luck was drafted. It was the most obvious number one overall pick. But it didn't take long for Urban to find a way to screw the, the draft up after that. You know, Meyer, who is new coach of a team that lost 15 straight games in 2020 and finished 1-15 and, and have massive holes all over the roster decided that the best way to build around Trevor Lawrence was to take a running back, Travis Etienne to be specific, who's a great player. Don't get me wrong. He's going to be a solid NFL player. But when your team loses 15 games in a season, is running back really what you want to spend a first-round pick on, especially when you had an undrafted free agent in James Robinson last year run for over 1,000 yards and seven touchdowns and is on contract for the next three seasons making less than a million dollars. And then Urban comes out and makes it worse. He comes out the day after the draft and says he's planning on using ETN as a third down back. And I think Twitter might have exploded when this happened uh, because spending a first-round pick at the beginning of a rebuild on a running back is bad enough. And, you know, it's, it makes it worse considering that you have the guy on the roster who's already proven himself to be capable it is nuclear level bad to come out and say that that guy that you just used one of the most valuable sources of currency in the NFL, you just use that on him and say he's going to be a third down back. He's going to be a role-playing running back. One of the least valuable positions, running backs are important, but it's more running back core value and core production is important than individual running backs. 
and using a first-round pick on a guy that you're going to use on one down, it's inexcusable. And then after that, Urban comes out and says that he's taking reps at wide receiver at rookie minicamp. Rather than drafting a wide receiver at pick 25, they decided to take a running back, use him as a third down back, and then also try to use him as a slot receiver. It's it's just, it's been a bad time on Twitter for Urban Meyer, and I, you got to feel bad for the guy, you know. This is... This is what you do in college. You know, you get athletes in the building, you find it, you put them in a position that you think they can succeed in, and then you go roll out with them. But this is the dang NFL. It don't work like that, man. You you can't just bring in all these recruits. You get seven draft picks a year, maybe more, maybe less, depending on uh, how, how trades in previous years have shaped your draft. But you don't get a lot of darts to throw at the board. You can't be wasting picks trying to move guys around positions. You can't waste first-round picks ever, especially during a rebuild. Urban Meyer biffed this one bad. And I'm not quite sure how much uh, the Jaguars' front office is going to be going to him for player personnel decisions in the future after this. And for the story of the show, I have to preface by saying that I hate to do this. I have an immense amount of respect for the MLB Hall of Fame, I think it is the most special of the major sports Hall of Fames. I think it's the most difficult to get into. It's the one that I have the most respect for. Not necessarily bashing the other ones, but there's something special about Cooperstown. I haven't been, and I hope one day, it's a bucket list item for me, I hope one day to walk around the halls of Cooperstown and get to take in the history of the game that I love so much. And, you know, the the person that I need to talk about, that I need to talk about today is a member of that Hall of Fame. So it, it really pains me to kind of dig into this. But when the Chicago White Sox hired Tony La Russa this offseason, I was confused. And I sent off a tweet the day he was hired, you know, and it, it read, the Chicago White Sox' biggest strength is their youth, and they hired an old-school coach who harps on the unwritten rules and, quote, respecting the game. Kind of sort of hit that one on the head, I think. Now, I want to set the scene. The Twins are down 15-4 and decide to bring in a position player onto the mound to pitch, Williams Astadio. He's up there throwing 45-mile-per-hour Ephesus all over the place, obviously not actually trying to get outs. He's just up there having a good time. So when Yerman Mercedes steps up to the plate and goes up on Astadio 3-0, 3-0 count, he decides to swing at a 47-mile-per-hour pitch that's thrown right down the middle, again, because Astadio was not trying to get outs, and he hits it 420 feet to dead center and gets to round the bases with the home run, and everything's awesome, you know? I mean, position players are pitching, position players are hitting. That's, that's baseball. You get 27 outs, score as many runs as you can. This isn't, you know, 9U ball. Go score. These are Major League players. Good for you, Yerman. But unfortunately, after the game... Tony LaRussa decided to do something that I believe is one of the, the cardinal sins of coaching, and that is airing out your dirty laundry. He decides to throw Yerman Mercedes, his guy, who has been great to start his career for Chicago, decides to throw him under the bus to the media, say, that's not how we play baseball. We'll handle it in-house. 
he'll face punishment from the family, sounding like an old mob boss, which was which was pretty funny. But the point of it is just so irritating and infuriating, the fact that we're still doing this in the year 2021. And then to make it even worse, when Tyler Duffy decides to throw at Yermin Mercedes the next day, after the game, Tony LaRussa decides to side with Duffy and essentially says he saw nothing wrong with what happened. And that is where the line is drawn. You know, if you want to be the manager that goes against your locker room and airs it out to the media, that's your choice. Probably the wrong decision, but that's your choice. When guys start throwing at your team and you side with them, buddy, that locker room's never coming back. They weren't coming back to begin with. I mean, Tim Anderson has been all over Instagram hyping up Yerman Mercedes, telling him to keep swinging 3-0. He commented it on a post and then said it on an IG Live. And baseball is just like any other sport. If you lose that locker room as a coach, you're never getting it back. There's no coming back from this for Larusa. And I mean, how, how could you possibly expect the White Sox, who are playing their hearts out and, and playing their game, you know, having fun, hitting bombs, striking guys out. You know, modern baseball, that's what the White Sox were built on. How can you possibly expect them to, A, have ever related to Tony La Russa, who's 76 years old and is very, very adamant, obviously, but we knew that before he was hired about these unwritten rules and playing the game, quote, the right way and, you know, hitting a home run, dropping your head and jogging around the bases. Man, that's done. It's time to move on. If you don't like baseball full of ex- full of this joy and this infectious energy and this fun that we've never got to experience because of stooges like Tony Larusa, get out, man. The game is changing. Get with it or get out. It's just like anything in life. Things evolve. And baseball has evolved past the need for people who decide to A try to enforce these unwritten rules and B, when one of their players is punished for breaking one of these unwritten rules by someone hurling a baseball at them at 90 plus miles per hour and you side with the other team, that is so far beyond the realm of acceptable behavior for a major league umpire. It makes me sick. The experiment with Tony LaRussa has run its course. Jerry Reinsdorf needs needs to get him out of the building. Tony LaRusso should not manage another game for the Chicago White Sox, and he should not manage a game in Major League Baseball ever again. And he has shown that time and time again. For a man who has had the issues off the field that Tony LaRusso has had to come in and try to enforce something like this, it's just so tone-deaf and out-of-touch with what the modern game is and what the modern player is. It, it's truly despicable. And I, I hope that the cries get louder and louder until the Chicago White Sox are freed. I hate calling for jobs, but at a certain point, enough is enough. And Tony LaRussa, you gotta go. 